if you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do. Um, please turn in them to Romans chapter 13. If you're new with us this morning, we are walking through this grand letter by the Apostle Paul, written to the early church in the city of Rome. And uh, we've spent, been spending a couple of weeks in these first seven verses in chapter 13, in which we find probably the most significant, the grandest uh, collection of Scripture dealing with the Christ follower's response or right to engage with government, civil government. How are we as followers of Jesus, as citizens of a foreign land, to respond to this government of this land in which he has sent us and in which he has us for a time. This is what Paul has been dealing with in these seven verses. And so we're going to conclude our study of these seven verses and move on from this next week. But I want to read, we're going to focus on verses 5 through 7. But by way of context, I want to read the entire passage beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. The Apostle Paul writes to us. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. And you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the privilege of seeing you bless families this morning and seeing you cause a church to welcome these children into their midst and commit themselves to encourage and pray for these parents and these children as you raise them up. We thank you for the privilege of singing songs like this that extol your glories. And uh, we pray, Father, that as we turn now to your word that we would not lose an ounce of our tenor of worship. We would stay in that place awed by you in reverence of you in love with you, and out of gratefulness and appreciation for your word, we now seek to be instructed by it um, and changed by it so that, Father, uh, we might look more like your son, Jesus. God, we pray uh, for those uh, in our midst who might not know you. Uh, Maybe they're uh, investigating the claims of Christ. Maybe they're checking out Christianity Father, we pray that the gospel would ring true to them. 
pray, Father, that as we unpack a passage of Scripture that tells us what we ought to do, Lord, that those who don't know you by faith would not walk away thinking that as long as they obey these rules, that they will make themselves acceptable to you. Lord, show them the folly of that. Um, Use your word this morning to demonstrate to them the seriousness of their own sin and disobedience to you. And that they, like all of us, deserve judgment from you, not grace. And Father, may the, may the good news of Jesus Christ's um, condescension to earth, perfect life among us as your Son, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, and his standing at your right hand, Father, would you, would you impress upon them the gospel? That it is only by faith in Jesus Christ as our substitute that we, can make, that we are made right with you, that we are made acceptable to you, that we are given his righteousness in return. And Father, as those who have been transformed by grace through faith, we want to live for your glory, and that's really what this passage is about, as we seek to live as foreign citizens in this land. We want to live for your glory, and so use this passage to, um, to change us, to look more like him, so that you are glorified through us. We pray that you would do that in Jesus' name, amen. As we've said over the last couple of weeks, the main overarching command principle of this passage is found there in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So as Christians, as exiles of a foreign nation, as citizens of heaven, that we are to be characterized by being law-abiding and civil government-respecting citizens of earth as well. And we mentioned that there are two exceptions to this. The first exception being that when civil government requires us to do something that would cause us to violate God's word, that we're to, as Peter said, we're to obey God rather than man. And in those cases, we are obligated to disobey government because we answer to a higher authority. And the second exception to this would be when government itself is so evil, so corrupt, so immoral, that action must be taken to disobey it and yet still endure the right punishment of that government because that government too is instituted by God. That we're to be characterized as law-abiding, civil government, respecting citizens, as citizens of heaven. We talked about three reasons why we're to do this. First of all, as Paul mentions in this passage, all government, all civil government and authority comes from God. God's the one who institutes all rulers and all governments without exception. Even those that we might label as categorically evil and immoral, like Pharaoh in the Old Testament. God used Pharaoh for his own purposes. And we don't often know, we don't always know why God appoints evil and immoral people to rule a free people. But we know that whatever he does, he does for his own glory and the good of his children. And even though we, we don't necessarily agree with his choices or understand why he's doing that, we trust that he is 
All authority is instituted by God. So that's why we obey government. That's why we submit to the governing authorities, because those governing authorities are instituted by God. So the second reason that we dealt with last week is because government has been given by God the right and the responsibility to met out judgment and punishment on those who break their laws. That's part of the role of the government. Paul gave us in this passage, we pulled from this, Paul's twofold purpose for government. Number one, to restrain evil. Secondly, to promote good. Government restrains evil by doing what Paul says, by wielding the sword. He says in verse 4 there, he doesn't bear the sword in vain, referring to government's right to met out punishment for lawbreakers. So he doesn't bear the sword in vain. Instead, he is, as Paul says, God's avenger carrying out his wrath on the wrongdoer. And so government serves to restrain evil, but also to promote good. Government promotes good that when we obey government, when we obey our governing authorities, government rewards us in two ways. One, by withholding the sword from us and and reserving it for those who break laws. But secondarily, it rewards us by allowing us to lead what, what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 verse 2, allows us to lead peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. But the third reason that I want to deal with this morning that Paul mentions in verse 5 is that we ought to obey the governing authorities because of the sake of conscience, for the sake of conscience. And then in verses 6 and 7, Paul issues a second command. So there's two commands in verses 1 through 7. The first in verse 1 is, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So in other words, submit to the governing authorities. That's the first command, the first imperative verb. But the second imperative verb form is found in verse 6. Pay your taxes. And so this morning we're going to talk about those two things. We're going to talk about obeying government for the sake of conscience. And secondly, we're going to talk about paying taxes. So I know we're excited about that. We're pumped about that. May the Lord use his word in this case. We ought to submit ourselves to the governing authorities that God puts over us because of our conscience. comes right out of verse 5. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection, that is to submit to the governing authorities, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, what is our conscience? It's not Jimmy Cricket. How many of y'all remember Jimmy, Jimmy Cricket? Yeah, a few of you will show your age along with me. Uh, Jiminy Cricket, that little cricket in, in the story of Pinocchio. Um, and Pinocchio was a, was a puppet. Puppets don't have consciences. And so Jiminy Cricket was his conscience. And what did he say? Let your conscience be the rule of what is right and wrong. Well, we're not puppets, so we do have a conscience. But what is our conscience? Webster's Dictionary defines it this way. It is the sense or consciousness of the moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct, intentions, or character, together with a feeling of obligation to do right or be good. Now, perhaps we could shorten that definition simply to say it is the knowledge of what is right and wrong, what is morally good and what is morally wrong. And that actually fits with the Latin origins of this word consentia. Uh, The word con means with and sentia means knowledge. And so literally this word means with knowledge or we could say with knowledge of 
what is true, what is right, what is, what is right and what is wrong. Thomas Aquinas said, the conscience is the God-given inner voice that either accuses or excuses us in terms of what we do. That God-given inner voice. And that really affords with what uh, verse we're going to look at from, from earlier in Romans in which Paul talks about that inner voice that Thomas Aquinas talked about. John Calvin spoke of the divine sense that God puts in, in, in each person to know what is right and what is wrong. The Greek word for conscience, it appears 30 times in the New Testament. And the overwhelming majority of the time, it is used in a positive sense. It speaks to a good conscience or having a clear conscience. And so the overwhelming majority of times, though not all of the time, it speaks of conscience in a positive sense. Thayer's Dictionary uh, of New Testament Greek Words describes it, this, defines it this way. It is the soul, I wouldn't use the word soul, but they do, it's okay. The soul as distinguishing between what is morally good and bad and prompting to do the former and shun the latter, commending the one and condemning the other. Now, one of the most important and informative uh, uses of this word in the New Testament, we have already looked at back in Romans chapter 2. So I've got this on the screen for you. In Romans chapter 2, Paul was talking to the Jews about how uh, they would be judged according to the law because they had the law and the law revealed to them their sin. The, the, the law to the Jews showed them what God said was right and what God said was wrong. And so they would be judged according to the law. But he went on to say that the Gentiles also knew right from wrong. And he describes how in verses four, 14 through 16. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. How does this work? Verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While, so we're talking about unbelievers here. That the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So that's the work of the conscience right there. That, that's, that's what the conscience does. Even though they didn't have the law, these Gentiles did not have the Ten Commandments. They didn't have the Mosaic law. But even though they didn't have it, the work of the law somehow was written on their hearts. It was written on their consciences such that they knew what was right and what was wrong and were judged accordingly. That's what Paul was talking about back in chapter 2, so that they were without excuse even though they didn't have the law. And their consciences, he says, bore witness to them, either accusing them or excusing them. We know this to be the case. We don't need the law to convince us or to inform us that murder is wrong. Right? We, don't, we don't need a law to tell us that. We know that. We inherently know that, and that inherent knowledge of the immorality of something like murder is according to our God-given conscience. 
So, so that's how conscience works. It, it is given to us by God. It is that inherent knowledge of what is right and what is wrong, but it's not perfect. It's not perfect because it, is, it, it comes to us post-fall, and so it is stained with the sin of man. It is stained with the curse of sin. And so our conscience is not a perfect guide. We can't trust it like Pinocchio trusted Jiminy Cricket. We just can't. It's not perfect. And yet it is used by God to give us an inherent knowledge of right and wrong. Paul writes about how the conscience, consciousness, consciences of unbelievers can become seared. He talks about this in his letter to 1 Timothy, that our consciences, the conscience of, of an unbeliever can become seared, that by continually to sin against your conscience, what you know to be wrong, that that over and over, over time, the prompting of the conscience to t- tell us that this is wrong and to prompt us not to give in to what is wrong and instead to do what is right, that that conscience will, be, will become seared and we will seek to do what is wrong anyway. He also talks about how it can become defiled in Titus 1.15. So the, the conscience of an unbeliever is untrustworthy. But the conscience, church, of a believer is not 100% trustworthy either because it is still stained by the effects of the fall. It's still stained by sin. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that people, for example, can have a weak conscience. In that passage, he talks about how the weaker brother, the, the brother with a weak conscience, he says, Uh, might still think that what defiles us is what we put into our body, not what comes out of it. And so um, a a brother with a weak conscience might believe that for a believer, they shouldn't eat that uh, meat that was offered to uh, pagan idols uh, because that's going to cause me to sin. I'm going to defile myself by eating something that is, quote, unclean. Um, And Paul says that that's because his conscience is immature. His conscience is weak. We're going to see some of the result of weak consciences in the next chapter, in chapter 14, where Paul deals uh, with some of that with the church in Rome. But the believer, for the believer, the conscience can grow. The conscience is not 100% trustworthy, but it can grow, it can mature, it can become a more trustworthy moral compass, if you will, a more trustworthy uh, moral barometer of what is right and what is wrong. The writer of Hebrews uh, variously talks about how uh, our consciences, the consciences of the believer can be perfected, um, Hebrews 9.9, and purified, Hebrews 9.14. So, it's something that in the life of the believer can grow, it can mature, it can be perfected, it can, it can be purified. And so it's given to us by God. Um, it is given to us um, as to give us an awareness of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, for the believer, it's useful, the conscience is useful in order to show the unbeliever the reality of their, of their sin to show them where they have fallen short, even if they don't have the law, even if they don't have the word of God. It shows them that they are broken, that they are lost, and that they need a savior because that's what the conscience does. But even if they, if they continue to ignore the prompting of the conscience, again, it can be seared. As they violate conscience, their conscience over and over, it can become seared such that it no longer prompts them to do good instead of evil. 
For the believer, on the other hand, the conscience is a very helpful tool that gives us knowledge of right and wrong. And though it may start out weak in a new believer, it can grow, it can mature over time. It can become a more effective moral compass as we grow in Christ. Um, By the way, I think uh, James was referring to the work of the conscience when he says in James 4, 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So if he knows the right thing to do, what is that? That's the conscience. It's the conscience is where we know what is right and what is wrong. So if we know if something is right and we fail to do it, for him it is sin. And the converse would also be true. If we know something is wrong and we do it anyway, for us it is sin. So even when our conscience is weak, we can, we can violate it, even though our conscience may not be in accord with what truly is right or wrong. For example, the, the case in 1 Corinthians 8 of the brother whose conscience is weak and he believes that to eat this meat, it is wrong for him because he believes it will defile him. And so he believes that that is a sin, even though biblically, eating that meat that was offered to idols is allowable for the believer in Christ. If he thinks that it is wrong and he does it anyway, then to him it is wrong, according to James 4.17, and it is sin. So we can sin by violating our conscience, even when our conscience itself is not right, it's not true. But as the writer of Hebrews tells us, we mentioned earlier, our conscience, it can be perfected. It can grow. It can be purified. But how does that happen? How does a weak conscience become stronger? How does an imperfect conscience be perfect, become perfected? How does an impure conscience become purified? When Martin Luther was brought before the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church brought him before uh, the, the church in 1521 at the infamous Diet of Worms, and ordered Martin Luther to recant of his teachings that salvation is not um, something that's a result of purchasing indulgences from the church. It's not something that's a result of performing and doing penances as a result of sin, but instead salvation is only by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That he was ordered to recant at the Diet of Worms, and he refused, he refused to recant, and he did so by saying these words. He says, my conscience is held captive to the word of God, and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. So a weak conscience can become stronger as it is held captive by the word of God. As we grow to learn the principles and the truths that are in this book, as we begin to order our lives around them, as we begin to saturate our lives with these truths, our conscience gets recalibrated, if you will. It gets recalibrated, and, it, and it, over time, it, it loses the stain of that sin. It gets recalibrated to the Word of God. And so there's a very important application for us here, church, and that is to absolutely saturate our lives with the Word of God to absolutely immerse ourselves in the truths of this book, to know them, to study them, to memorize them, to meditate on, to saturate our lives with with these truths in the word of God so that our weak consciences, our seared consciences, our consciences that are defiled can be strengthened and perfected and purified. So, 
And, and really, after all, that's what, that's what Paul's getting at in Romans 12 too. Remember Romans 12, 1 and 2 is kind of the, it's the fulcrum on which this entire letter changes. The first part being the theological section, the the second half beginning in chapter 12 on through chapter 16. What should we do in light of the glories of the gospel? He tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we're not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. How is our mind renewed? By saturating our mind with the word of God. And through that, our conscience becomes recalibrated to what truly is right and what truly is wrong so that we can live for his glory. Not so that we can be good little Christians, but so that God can use us to bring glory to himself through changed lives. That's what that is all about. So back to verse 5. Paul tells us that we are to be in subjection to the governing authorities, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. In other words, for the believer, we, we obey the laws of the land. We obey the laws of our governing authorities, not just so that we'll stay out of jail, not just so that we won't have to pay a fine, not just so that we won't get arrested or whatever the case may be, but also because we know what is right and we know what is wrong. And increasingly, as, as we are conformed to the image of Christ, we want to do what is right. Not to earn favor with God, not, not, not to try to make ourselves acceptable to God, because that's impossible, but instead as a means of respecting and honoring and glorifying him as our king. Because after all, he is the one, again, who put this government in place, who instituted the governing authorities that are placed over us. This is in part a demonstration of how we're not to be conformed to the pattern of the world around us. Instead, be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Back in chapter 12, verse 9, uh, Paul exhorted us to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. We could, we could uh, substitute these words for that, that we're, as believers in Christ, living in this land for now, that we are to abhor what is wrong and we are to hold fast to what is right we are to abhor what is morally wrong and what is morally wrong according to god's word is to disobey god's authorities that he has placed over us but instead to embrace and to hold fast to what is right and our conscience helps us do that so we don't we don't want to just obey because we're trying to avoid being punished that's the kind of obedience that we would expect from a young child right? From like some of the children that we saw up here today. We would expect that kind of obedience as they grow to obey, that they're obeying because they don't want to be punished. But as the children grow, as they get older, as they grow into their teenage years, uh, we would expect a change in the motivations for their obedience, that they begin to obey, not just because they have to or else they'll get punished, but because they're increasingly uh, owning what is right and what is wrong and knowing what is right and, and what is wrong and they are increasingly wanting to do what is right in order to glorify the God who made them for his own glory as a means of worshiping God and Paul is telling us here what is right is to obey the laws of civil government that God has placed over us and it is wrong to disobey them the exceptions that we've already dealt with notwithstanding the rule is, the default for us is to be a law-abiding, civil government-respecting people, that we obey the governing authorities that God has placed over us. Number one, because God's the one who put them in place. 
Number two, because God has given them the right and the responsibility to met out judgment and punishment. But thirdly now, because we know, because God has, has, has imprinted this on our conscience, we know what is right and what is wrong. And as we're being transformed into the image of Christ, we have a growing desire to do what is right so that we might rightly reflect our righteous king. And then Paul closes this section on the Christian's response to government by telling us that we should be prepared to pay for the privilege of our government serving us in these ways. Verse 6 says this, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now, who here likes to pay taxes? Okay, not a whole lot of hands go up. We, none of us like to pay taxes. I know it's that time of year. You're getting your tax return documents um, uh, in the mail, and you're preparing your returns. Nobody likes to pay taxes, but even Jesus himself says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and render unto God the things that are God's. We don't like to pay taxes primarily for two reasons. One, because we have the mistaken assumption that that money is ours and that we think that we should have it, not the government, because it's our money. And I understand the logic behind that, but the biblical logic is converse to that. The biblical logic tells us that as followers of Christ, as those who have become bond slaves of Jesus, everything that is ours is not actually ours. All of who we are and all that we own is his. And he's simply made us stewards. He's made us to be managers for a time of all that is his, including his resources, including his money that he has given to us to steward and watch after. And he says what to do with his money. Part of that is to pay our taxes, to pay what is due to Caesar. As followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot skimp on our taxes. We have to pay Caesar what is due to him. And when we fall into the lie that it's our money and, we, and we, we know what's better to do with our money, well, actually, God knows what's best for your money. And he tells you what to do with part of it, what you and I have to do with part of it, and that is to pay unto Caesar what is due to him. The second reason why we don't like to pay taxes, and, and we typically lean on this more than the other, and that is because we don't feel like we're getting our money's worth, right? We, we pay all this money to the government, and what do we get in return? What do we actually get as a return for that? We, we bemoan the fact that, you know, we don't really get our money's worth when we pay our taxes. So what are we paying for when we pay our taxes? Verse 6 tells us, for because of this, you also pay taxes. What is the this that is the reason for which we pay taxes? Because of what do we pay taxes? Because of government's work in doing its twofold purpose, restraining evil and promoting what is good. Now, just think for a moment with me about all that our government does. However inefficiently, set that aside for now, however inefficiently it may do this, and however you and I may disagree that the government even needs to be doing some of the things that it does, consider what the government does in order to restrain evil and promote good. First of all, it provides a military. It, it, it pays for a military, and we get to enjoy the peace and national security that a well-funded military affords its citizens. Also, police, 
firefighters, other first responders that keep us out of harm's way by moving towards harm themselves. We saw an example of that in Illinois just this week as first responders went into that warehouse. Why? To try to protect the citizens of Aurora. It provides the court system. The court system that upholds our laws, that adjudicates justice and holds criminals accountable. The prison system that keeps criminals and evil off our streets. DEA that keeps drugs off of our street. The health department and food inspectors that keep our food safe when we go to eat lunch after church. The FAA air traffic controllers that keep air travel safe. The park service that keep our national parks clean and ready for us to enjoy. All of this takes money, and so we pay taxes. We pay income taxes, property taxes, state taxes, sales taxes, federal, state, local taxes. We pay all kinds of taxes. But the rub for many of us, if not most of us, is that we often don't feel like we're getting our money's worth. But I think we ought to remember the setting in which this letter was written. The Apostle Paul was writing to followers of Jesus Christ who were being persecuted by the Roman government. And yet Paul still says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, even though they are persecuting you. The end of verse 6 here helps us to make sense of this. Paul says there, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing, ministers of God. So when we pay our taxes, we do do so with the understanding that our government is acting as a minister of God, a servant of God is what that word means, God's servant in restraining evil and promoting good. Which means that it is God who is helping us through the DEA. It is God who is helping us through the FBI. It is God who is helping us through the police, through the DOT and their highway projects, through the court system, through the military, through the health department. That they are ministers of God to attend to us in restraining evil and promoting good. Have you ever considered that? I I haven't. To be quite honest, I haven't considered the fact that I am the beneficiary of, of re- evil being restrained, however imperfectly, and good being promoted, however imperfectly. I am the beneficiaries of that at the hands of this government because they are God's servant to attend those benefits to me. So we ought to be grateful for that. That through all of these government entities, these government agencies, and many more, It is the Lord who is serving us. It is the Lord who is helping us to restrain evil and to promote good. And we're to recognize that gratefully by paying our taxes. And so we pay our taxes regardless of whether or not we feel like we're getting our money's worth. That's that's irrelevant in this case. Now, we can seek to change that. We can seek to improve the efficiency of government with our vote by getting engaged in the political system. There's nothing in God's word that prevents Christians from getting involved in that process to to either try to um, improve the efficiency of government or reduce the expenses of government so that the budget makes more sense, however you see fit. But whatever it is that we owe, not according to what I want to pay, but whatever it is that I owe according to the government, I owe because God says I owe that. It is what Caesar is owed, and I'm to render unto Caesar what is due to him. 
But, but Paul tells us as he closes this section with verse 7, he tells us that we are to pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Now, elsewhere, the Bible tells us to do these sorts of things for specific groups of people in specific offices. Um, Paul tells children that you're to honor your mother and father. Um, Church members are told to honor the elders of that church. Um, All of us are told to honor the aged, honor those who are older than us. But the context here of this passage is where Paul is talking about how the believer is to engage with and respond to a civil government. And so I would take verse 7 to mean primarily not those means of honor. Scripture speaks to that elsewhere. But I think in this passage, he's talking primarily to the fact that I owe taxes and I owe revenue and I owe respect and I owe honor to the governing authorities that God has put over me. He's already told us to pay taxes that we owe. Revenue was probably another form of tax. But he also tells us that we're to respect and honor the civil authorities. And it's become common in our culture, as you know, to do exactly the opposite. To, in fact, disrespect and dishonor our governing authorities. Whether it's the president or legislators in the House or Senate or whether it's the FBI or federal agencies or local agencies or the police or even the teacher in the classroom, our culture is losing respect for authority and treats authority with dishonor rather than honor. And and here's where we get to the real crux of this. Paul wants his readers and wants us as followers of Jesus Christ to know that part of following Jesus means that you will not follow suit with what the world does. That we will not, as he said in 12 verse 2, that we won't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but instead we'll be transformed, we'll be changed from the inside out. As he places his spirit in us and he begins to affect that change, that transformation into the likeness of Christ, he transforms us by the renewing of our mind to, to be changed into the image of Christ. And as you are changed into the image of Christ, believe me, you will look different from the world around you. You will act different. And in this case, you will respect and honor authority even if culture is not. Why? Because that authority is in place because God determined it to be in place. And so our respect and our honor for our governing authorities is ultimately respect and honor for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we will reflect Christ to a lost world. And our reflection of him shown in our submission to the governing authorities, even when perhaps it doesn't make sense, even when perhaps it is not fair, worships and glorifies him as our supreme authority and and gives us what what Paul told the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He calls the aroma of Christ. Let me, let me read 2, Timothy, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16. 
So I think this is, this is what Paul is after in our transformation into the image of Christ, both as a means of worship of God, but also as a means through which a lost and dying world will see us as different and want to know the reason for the hope that we have. Paul says this, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's what we're to do while we're here, right? We're to, we're to spread everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. How does that work? Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Consider that. Church, we are the aroma of Christ to God. We, we, are, we are living as sacrifices to God, as a means of worship to God. We live differently. And so, and so we are the aroma of Jesus Christ. And like him in his sufferings, like him in his sacrifices, we are the aroma of Christ to God, pleasing him as we live. But we are the aroma of Christ to God among who? Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, among everyone. Among God's people whom he's redeeming to himself and among those who are lost and hopeless apart from Christ and need the gospel. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? As we endeavor to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, which is what Paul exhorted us to in the very first verse of, of this second half of the letter. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So as we endeavor to offer our lives as living sacrifices for the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel, and as we endeavor to resist being conformed to the pattern of the world and instead being transformed by the renewing of our mind into the likeness of Jesus, we will be the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. May God so transform you and I for his own glory so that a lost world will look at us and see the difference, that we won't look like everybody else around us, that we will display, in this case, honor and respect for authority, and it will look different, and they will want to know a reason for the hope that exists in us. And ultimately, that will be for the glory of God. May he be worshiped through New Branch as he transforms us to look more like him. Let's pray.